Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. This is the fifth season of the podcast to take us up to the end of 2022. Thanks to all our loyal listeners for returning and welcome to all our new listeners. As before, IG Markets have come on board as sponsors of this podcast. We're truly grateful to have such an award-winning CFD provider as sponsor alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some guests from the previous seasons of the podcast to get their updated market views, and we'll also be bringing in some new guests to the microphone too. As always, the aim with these podcasts is to give you the opportunity to listen to differing market views and to assist you with your own trading and investing education. So with that in mind, let's get straight into another episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another season of Talking with Traders, and I'm delighted this time for our first episode of Season 5 of Talking with Traders to welcome back Nick van Rensburg. Uh, Nick is an independent trader and an independent macro strategist. I do quite a lot of work with him on a few other initiatives that we're involved with, and it's always fascinating to speak to Nick. And I guess, Nick, it's a feather in your cap that this is the fourth time I'm welcoming you you back to the podcast. No other guest has come back more than twice so far, so it says something about the quality of your work. Welcome back to Talking With Traders. Thanks, Scott. Maybe you'll learn your lesson this time. (laughs) Well, we were just joking before we went uh, onto the record button here and saying that you know, you you had gone back through the previous three podcasts that we did together and you'd picked out a couple of things that you got wrong. I've listened to some of our podcasts. There's a lot of things that you've got right. And I think we probably are uh, all too uh, hard on ourselves when it comes to critiquing ourselves. So maybe the things that you got wrong stand out more in your mind than they do in mine or in any of the listeners' minds. But in any case, you know, it's always good to get a view. It's always insightful from you. And even if it's not always right, it's food for thought. And that's what we're going to try and do again on the podcast once again here today. But to get into it, we are going to take a brief look back at some of the previous calls. Uh, The last time that you and I spoke was on the 21st of April this year. So looking back uh, about five months from, from right now when we're recording this. So let's just take a look back at a couple of things, revisit them, and then we'll start to talk about the future and how we're looking at things out into the end of this year. At the time we spoke last time, the war in Ukraine uh, had been going for 55 days. And at that stage, we were saying, well, it didn't seem like there was any chance of um, of a diplomatic resolution. And there was a chance that there might be escalation. The war, the war is still ongoing. Um, Russia is looking weak, I guess. But it also seems like the European allies, if you can call them that, are also suffering from war fatigue. And obviously, Vladimir Putin's just up the ante now with the, shutting off the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline this week. So that's weaponizing energy for the purposes of this war. Where do we stand on this now in terms of the war in Ukraine? So just to start off with the gas, he started that in uh, November, December last year, which is when I started paying attention to the possibility that he might do something with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And through the year, he's just cut more and more, and now we're down to zero. So he said uh, he'll only switch it back on if sanctions are lifted against Russia. Now, the odds of sanctions getting lifted against Russia is remote. Uh, 
you know, there would need to be some form of regime change in the Kremlin for the West, I think, to accept lifting of any sanctions. The um, gas situation going into winter is going to be problematic for Europe. It seems like they may have enough gas because they have been building inventory. Uh, storage tanks are, I think, at about 80% at the moment. So they should have enough, but the price that they're paying is exorbitant. Uh, at the moment, natural gas prices are 10 times what they are in the U.S. And the U.S. net gas prices are up about 140 150% this year. So you can get an idea of just how massive the cost is. Yeah. So for cert- certain European countries like Italy, where 50% of its, its uh, electricity comes from natural gas, this is really problematic. And they've got an election on the 25th of September, which I think will be really interesting. On the war itself, I think it's just continuing on grinding away. I don't see any chances of a diplomatic solution anytime soon. Uh the Ukrainians are at the moment trying their first offensive move of the war because they've always been very defensive. So we'll see how that goes, and that's in Kershon and the southern region. If they're successful, that might be something of interest, but uh, it's too early to say. So the war, unfortunately, just continues on. Um, the Western support for the war, I think, will get tested during the winter when it's uh, at its coldest and gas is uh, most problematic. Mm. And obviously that's why... Putin's probably deciding to do this right now as we head into winter in the northern hemisphere. That's when this move is going to make the most uh, have the most effect. Yeah, so uh, Russia normally supplies about twenty percent of winter um, gas usage in Europe, and uh, if you look at winter over summer, you use approximately thirty to forty percent more electricity during winter. And the reason for it simply is that if you assume you want a temperature twenty one degrees in the room. In summer, it's not that much warmer. At the extremes, it is, but on average, it's not that much warmer, so you don't need as much cooling. Where in winter, the temperature is very far below 21, so you need a significant amount of energy to heat up to 21. And that's basically the reason why winter is um, seasonally such a a high-use period. Yeah, well, I I can attest to that from my own personal situation. Living in the UK, our homes are heated with gas, and I see it in my gas bill. It, literally in, in winter time, the gas bill is about a third of, sorry, in, in summertime, the gas bill is about a third of what it is in, in winter time. So it completely um, aligns with what you're saying there. Just want to quickly talk to one point, just really for the benefit of the listeners. When you said that um, natural gas in the US is a lot less expensive than it is in Europe, and European natural gas is about 10 times the price of what it is in, in America. Now, the you know, astute listeners out there might be thinking, well, that's strange because there surely must be an arbitrage between the two. There's a strong reason, a very physical, logistical reason for, for why that is the case. Can you just quickly outline it for us? Yes. Yeah, so Europe is not self-sufficient in gas. So that's the first problem for Europe. And that's why they buy from Russia. And then in uh, the US, they are self-sufficient because uh, gas comes out of the shale uh, well boom. As a side um uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, an extra product. And um, the result is that they export the excess of it, but they export it as a liquid natural gas. Mm. So and what the Europeans use is natural gas so in a gas form. And you need to take the temperature down to 160, minus 162 degrees, put it on a ship, sail it across the uh, Atlantic. And then it needs to go into a liquefaction plant that basically takes it back into a gas form. And then from, from there it gets uh, distributed 
in its usable form in Europe. So the bottleneck is the quantum of ships and also the liquefaction plants. Yeah. If okay. that was not a bottleneck, then uh, it would not be a bottleneck. Then uh, the prices would, would be much closer together. Yes, yes. Okay, super. One uh, spin out from the, the war in Ukraine that we discussed previously was the soft commodities. And at the time that we spoke in, in April, um, wheat and corn in particular had seen their prices rise quite dramatically. Obviously, Ukraine is a big producer of both wheat and corn and other soft commodities as well, but those are really big ones. Um, and there was a suggestion at the time that those soft commodity prices would stay high. It actually, it actually hasn't worked out that way. As in the months that, since we spoke, wheat and corn prices both have come down quite a lot, but they do seem like they're stabilizing now. And uh, purely from a technical perspective, it's almost looking to me like they're potentially lining up for another leg to the upside. Have you got any thoughts on where these softs stand at this point in time? I agree with you that I think they're lining up to uh, be trading higher going forward. Uh, one of the issues why I think, uh, you know, both oil came back quite a bit and also um, soft commodities is that I suspect there's a fair amount of smuggling going on. It doesn't look like the actual supply of Russian oil fell as much as what we all thought. And it's possible that um, similarly, a lot of the corn and wheat from Russia itself, but also potentially from the Ukraine might have still been shipped in other ways than what we're aware of. Uh, possibly to China. China is the biggest buyer of grains in the world, and they've also got the largest stockpiles in the world. They've got somewhere between 50 and 70% of all global grain stockpiles sit in China. And they've definitely reduced their Western grain buying in the mid middle of the year, and it's picking up now again in August. Mm, okay. We mentioned China, so let's quickly work, move across to China because that's another area we we spoke about, obviously, in the previous podcast. And we we talked about the zero COVID policy, which they're still on, and it's unworkable. It's an unworkable policy, but yet they're still persisting with this in China. Um, and China's economy is very, very weak at the moment, isn't it? Partly as a result of this, but also partly as a result of, of various other supply disruptions worldwide. So when we spoke earlier in the year, especially the first podcast, we mentioned that um, the one major risk for commodities and for the for the global economy is if China goes into zero COVID, into more of these lockdowns, and they definitely did that. And what has surprised me is just how weak the Chinese economy has been. It's been much, much weaker than I've ever seen it, and I've covered it since 2004. So if you look at activity data in July, it's the weakest to date, I, I believe the economy is actually in a recession. Mm. It's not growing positively and nowhere near the 55 or 4.5% growth rates that people expect. If you look at August data, I mean, you know, jet fuel demand's going way down. You know, we looked at flights earlier today where they would do about 10,500 flights in the beginning of the month, they're down to 6,500 now, which is 40% reduction. And this year's jet fuel demand is lower than what it was in 2020 with the hard national lockdowns. So the economy is really very weak. It seems like they're sticking to the policy at least until the plenum, which is on the 16th of October. And this is when Xi Jinping should uh, get his term extended. And the question then becomes, will they change the policy post the 16th of October? Because it doesn't seem like they're going to change anything in the run-up to the 16th of October. Hopefully they would. And if they do, then uh, commodity demand will increase and um, 
yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I think Wales also fallen back a lot is because uh, the Chinese economy has been so weak. You know, China is the biggest importer of oil, jet fuel, and so on in the world, and it's been a very weak economy. Okay, all right. So that's something to watch out for then, mid October, the plenum. Yes, sixteenth of October. So hopefully, uh, going into the fourth quarter, things will improve a bit. The mm. stimulus they've announced to date have been far too little for the extent of the weakness in the economy. They've announced uh, somewhere around one percent of GDP, which is not even close to enough. So hopefully, they would expand on their stimulus, although it doesn't look like it. There's a very, very big um, restructuring going on in the Chinese economy, and the result is that the economy will grow naturally much slower in the next decade than what it did in the last decade. It's one of the reasons why I'm not bullish on iron ore, because I think that the model is changing. Now, they may revert back short term to infrastructure spend, but the plan definitely is just to deleverage the economy and get to more of a consumer economy uh, mm. over time. And mm. they've been unsuccessful to date. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I know when we spoke previously, you were quite bearish on the iron ore stocks, um, bulletin, Anglo-American Comba, and all of those have moved down quite a lot since we spoke. So you definitely got that call right. And you're still sticking to the view then that you're quite bearish on, on iron ore and therefore those stocks as well? Uh, long term, yes. So long-term. in the short term, you know, if they do change zero COVID policy and reopen the economy, then my expectation would be that we would get, get a bounce uh, in any of the commodity stocks and um, uh, you know, the commodities themselves, because the economy is really slow at the moment. And you've got to think that there's got to be some level of improvement uh, at some point in time. So on the, in the very short term, I wouldn't short iron ore right here, but I would think that, you know, we've fallen from about 150 when we last spoke to a, a roughly 100. I think in the longer term, we're going to trade well lower than 100. Uh, cost curve is down 30, 40, $50. Uh, you know, so these companies are still very profitable, but not as profitable as what they used to be. Mm-hmm. So I think we are post peak earnings for these companies. And, um, you know, short term, maybe after the plenum, there could be a bit of a lift potentially, depending on what happens. And, uh, but I mean, you know, any kind of rallies, I just think that these businesses are, uh, they've seen their best years. Mm. Yeah, and for for listeners, I mean, it's that's an important point. The profit margins—they might still be making a hell of a lot of money, but it's the rates of change of profitability in these businesses that drives the share prices and that drives the cycle. So, I think you know, if you're looking at at the likes of Anglo's and Billitons and Kumbas, and you're looking at the historical numbers and thinking, "Wow, these things are cheap, and the dividend yields are nice and juicy," just be careful because that's always the case at the top of a cycle, and um, and in fact. You know, you, you more likely want to actually be buying these sort of stocks at the bottom of a cycle when the PEs are high and the historical dividend yields are low because that's often when things start to pick up. Have I got that right, Nick? Exactly right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I might just add in the short term is that in Europe, a couple of these steel producers are shutting down production because they've got arc furnaces which use electricity and the cost of that's too high. Now, if they're not producing steel, they're also not buying iron ore. Mm-hmm. So that is a short-term negative. And then if I were to be wrong, if I was to be wrong, longer term, on my longer-term view on iron ore, it would be because the rest of the world iron ore demand increases significantly. That may happen, although I don't. that's not a base case yet. At the moment, China buys over 60% of world seaborne iron ore, uh, which means that they are the market. And when they're slow, everyone feels it. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that the rest of the world could absorb that kind of um, that kind of production. 
Yeah. Um, the other issue, of course, and it's still an issue, and it's the massive watchword, I guess, for this year and has been for last year as well, is inflation. So I mean, it's remained stubbornly high. I know when we spoke previously, we were thinking at that stage it would inflation would probably peak somewhere around about then and around about the second quarter of this year. It seems like it's been stubbornly high and it's it's well, it looks like it may have now peaked, I think, in the third quarter. But where do we stand on that? I mean, I think that it's it's probably a fair case to say that inflation may have peaked and it's probably coming down. But uh, you know, that's partly due to base effects. Uh which is understandable because we're lapping high figures from the previous year now. But I guess the real issue is not, you know, whether it's going up or coming down, it's where's it going to settle? Because the Fed wants inflation at 2% and it's still like north of 8% at the moment, hell of a lot higher. And, and interest rates are only sort of two and a half percent. So there's a huge disconnect there. Where are you in terms of inflation now looking out and then i guess we're leading on from that what's your outlook for interest rates in the states so i'd say before the war uh we thought maybe march it would peak and then when the war happened we thought the second quarter um the highest number so far was june i think that was the peak mm. uh, we are definitely rolling over one of the key reasons is that the supply chain is not as much of an issue as what it used to be uh, we've got significant goods deflation and the reason for that is just that, um, you know, the, the U.S. economy is shifting back to services from goods. If you remember, we spoke about this you know, during the lockdowns. Everyone were, everyone was buying goods and not services because we were in lockdowns. And then as the economy reopens, you shift spending back to services. So, therefore, goods have been coming down in price. That, I think, continues Similarly, we've seen gasoline come down, firstly because oil's come down, but also because crack spreads have come down. So gasoline prices have gone down, which is a positive. The areas that remain stubborn are services that still got significant inflation. And the one that the Fed would worry about the most is wages. Mm -hmm. Wage inflation remains very strong at around 7%. And this is where inflation can become a more permanent issue. If the wages don't come down, which is the reason that they're trying to uh, loosen the labor market, because at the moment there's still roughly 1.75 jobs for every unemployed person in America. And that number needs to come way down so that uh, employers can get negotiating power back and not labor. Mm. One of the problems, obviously, structurally, is that um, U.S. approval of labor unions are now the highest that it's been since 1965 which, you know, whenever you hear something at a 60-year high, you need to take notice. Boomers are retiring, and we're definitely deglobalizing. And I think, you know, when you're building a system, it's not for efficiency, which is what globalization was, but for robustness that adds cost. Um, interestingly, I uh, read a survey the other day, and they were speaking to some CEOs and asking them if deglobalization is actually happening. And they said it wasn't and they weren't really doing it, but now they are. And the key reason for it is what happened to companies in Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, you can invest all your money in China and build factories, low cost and so forth. But if China invades Taiwan and it gets sanctioned, you will lose 100% of whatever you invested. So there's no point. You, uh, that massive sanctions risk has basically forced their hand that they have to shift away. You'll see that a company like Apple, which has got 80% of its production in China, they've moved some production to Vietnam and uh, India. The, these are very small, 
But in time, you can imagine that they would have to increase it because a company like that, would uh, it's, it's an existential threat for Apple. If mm. uh, China had to invade Taiwan tomorrow, then uh, Apple will lose, I think, optimistically, only 50%, pessimistically, quite a lot more. Mm. Okay, and I know that that China-Taiwan situation is a tail risk, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, something else quickly to ch- to mention is the US dollar, because this has been a very, very strong currency this year. It's the strongest major currency, developed world currency by a long shot this year. Uh, and there's quite a strong correlation between the dollar strengthening and equity markets and risk assets falling and vice versa. So there's an idea. I mean, now in June and July, we saw the US dollar weaken a bit, and that was when the equity markets managed to make quite a nice bear market rally. But now, of course, as we've headed into August and now in September, the dollar is strong, making new highs on the US dollar index. And correspondingly, we've seen the S&P 500 falling off quite hard. That's something still very important to keep an eye on, I guess, is the direction of the US dollar. Technically, I can see no real reason why it should roll over imminently, but um, it is very, very overbought. It's very stretched. Where do you stand on the US dollar at the moment? I I agree with you. Technically, it looks like I can get to 110.50, 11 somewhere around there. So let's Mm. just say 110.50 to 111. Mm. If it gets through those kind of levels, then next level is 115, 116. The problem with a strong dollar is that when the dollar is strong, US equities tend to outperform rest of world equities, but all equities are falling. So it's definitely a risk-off environment when the dollar is very strong. Mm. Uh, EM, you know, EM is in a way, MSCI EM is almost an inverse of the dollar. When the dollar is going up, EM is going down and vice versa. So if you want to be bullish on EM equities, you need the dollar to turn around and fall. Now, there's a couple of catalysts this month, which makes it possible that it could change or accelerate. Um, That's uh, what we'll see. Uh, This week on Thursday is the ECB. And they expect it to hike rates by 75 basis points. And mm-hmm. if that doesn't get a bit into the euro, then uh, then I think the, the dollar is going to break out on the upside. Mm-hmm. The Fed is on the 21st of September. And um, those are probably the two biggest short-term events for the dollar. Uh, if the dollar doesn't roll over soon, then I sus- my anticipation would be that risk assets would remain very weak. Mm-hmm. I guess it runs the risk of a blow-off move. In my experience, when you see a chart like what the US dollar index has done, it just trends up and up, and the trend becomes a bit steeper and a bit steeper and a bit steeper. Those types of moves very often just seem to end with a, a massive blow-off, where it's you know it'll go like the like the Eiffel Tower on one side before it then you know has a sharp correction afterwards. I guess that is a fear in the near term: is that if the US dollar were to blow off and what that could mean for other risk assets, equities, and possibly gold, and also for bonds, right? Yeah, so the uh, if it gets through 111, then my assumption would be that we'd do at least another 4 or 5%, but we could go as high as 120 and extreme. Mm. Uh, I think you've also got a level there. Yeah. So that, that would be probably the most bearish outcome I can think of. If that were to happen, uh, what would make it happen? I mean, that could be any of the tail risks happening. Uh, Maybe if the Fed is even more hawkish than what we anticipate mm. or the ECB doesn't follow through on Thursday, these are the kind of things that could happen. But we're in a, we're in a key period now because a lot of um, Northern Hemisphere investors are returning back to work. So 
you know, volumes were very, very thin during July and August when they were away. Mm-hmm. And we'll see, we'll get a truer reflection of market action in the next uh, two weeks. So, yeah, so I'm definitely watching it closely because we're not that far off a uh, key resistance level. And if we get through there, then I think we, you know, there's another leg down in equities. Yeah, sure. And uh, you, you talked about the Fed as well. Um, let's just quickly talk about that because be, they are hawkish. I mean, in, at the time we spoke in April this year, there were sort of whisperings that they might hike by 50 basis points at the at the next Fed meeting at that stage. Then it became 75 basis points, and that was quite hawkish. Now, we've seen uh, – what have we seen since then? Two hikes of 75 basis points, I think. Am I right? And 50 basis points before that. And now we're coming up to the September FOMC meeting, uh, as you mentioned, and the odds are looking increasingly likely that this is, this is going to be another 75 basis points hike in – uh, in September, but yet, if you look at inflation, you look at where Fed funds rate is, it's still a massive disconnect. I mean, where where do you think Fed the Fed actually needs to take interest rates in order to try and get inflation under control? You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Uh, I think the problem is, you know, they, they need to take it much higher, but they probably cannot take it much higher. Uh, you know, we can maybe get to 4% or so, which I think would be relatively extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if inflation is still at eight, seven, or six, you know, in theory, it should be quite a bit higher. The problem is the economy is quite a lot more indebted than what it used to be, you know, let's say 40 years ago when Volcker did this. So hiking rates, in especially as quickly as what they've done, because the effect of rate hikes take a while to work through the economy. It's not an immediate thing, you know, like people take some pain, you know, next month's payment or the month thereafter, and it's a cumulative issue. So I'd say most of the effect of the rate hikes we'll only see early next year. And my guess is in the next three, six months, we'll see the U.S. recession start. Mm. I'd be quite surprised if they don't enter a recession. Um, but that's the most likely outcome is that the U.S. is the last economy that enters recession. You know, we, in my view, China's already in a recession. Europe is already in a recession. The U.K. is close to a recession if it's not already in a recession. Yeah. So between those economies, we've probably got somewhere around 70% of world GDP, which is quite chunky. Mm. So that does make it more difficult. In an environment normally where growth is weak, you would want to buy bonds. But um, you know, not when the Fed is hiking this aggressively and when inflation is so much higher than what the bond yields are. So I suspect at the moment we're taking liquidity out of the system, which is a negative for assets, mm. financial assets especially. And then at some point, we'll get a growth scare, and, and that's the point where maybe treasuries can have a rally. But until that point, my guess is that uh, interest rates keep going higher. Yeah. You know, in the beginning of the year, we may, maybe just to finish on the 10-year treasury, in the beginning of the year, we said if it broke through, uh, if the 10-year broke through 1.7%, the target would be 28 to 3 And that sounded extreme. Mm. But in June, we got to about 3.5%, and we're now 3.2%. My view is if we get through three and a quarter again and stay there, then I think we'll probably get to 355 to 375%, 3.75%. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. So none of this is good for equities out of a discount rate point of view. And then, you know, obviously then the, the next thing is what happens to earnings and there the pressure is firmly on the downside. Well, this is it. I mean, the, the earnings in first quarter and second quarter came out, um, well, they weren't good. They weren't good. But I think because of all the revisions, they kind of looked better than they than they actually were. And you gave a very interesting stat when, when you and I were chatting earlier this morning that, in fact, second quarter earnings were actually down if you stripped out the energy companies. Did I understand you right when you said that? Yes, operating earnings were actually down 9%. And I mean, a company like Apple earnings was, was down 10% in the second quarter. So these shares, you know, a lot of them rallied hard. I mean, something like Apple got to within 6% of its all-time high, mm. despite the fact that earnings were down 10% in the second quarter and the discount rates much higher. So it's pretty clear that the market still thinks that inflation is transitory. It still behaves as if it is, irrespective of what the discussions are. And that's going to be the question, you know, do we see a realization that the Fed is serious, you know, when investors come back from holiday? And uh, if that is the case, then I suspect we're going to take out the lows in the S&P from June, which is around 3650. Yeah. So my guess is we'll be going lower then. Yeah. Yeah. I must say, when I look at the charts, as I do, there's all of them, pretty much all the sectors, major sectors of the U.S., look as if they are heading down to those June lows and possibly to take out those June lows again. Another aspect uh, which we haven't touched on yet is the fact that quantitative tightening has also stepped up now from the beginning of September. And that's, you know, if all of the stuff that we've been talking about now was not already enough cause for alarm, they're withdrawing $95 billion a month worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, It's the fastest taper ever seen. So more liquidity being drained from the market there. Yeah, it's largest and fastest. So I think you've got to look at that along with interest rate hikes, uh, you know, which probably tells you that interest rates won't go as high as what we think because if you add the two together, the effect on liquidity will be quite extreme. Mm. Putting all of this together, I mean, it just it seems like everything that's driven this uh, market rally for the last decade, for the most part, but you know, especially in 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 twenty twenty and in early twenty twenty one, I mean, all of those factors, there were tailwinds for the market. All of them have become headwinds, from what I can read between the lines. Yeah, you had low lowish inflation, low wage inflation, record high corporate margins, uh, a very liquid environment, you know, lots of liquidity by central banks globally. I mean, every Central bank on the, on the globe was, uh, you know, were basically cutting rates and doing QE, and that's now turned the other way. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got this is probably the steepest rate hike cycle on a global basis ever. So it's it's a concerted effort by all central banks, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, you've obviously got significant inflation that's eating into consumer spend. So this is not a friendly environment. You know, the the the, the only way I can see the market rally is um, on hope, not on reality. Mm. It's pretty hard to imagine how people get bullish when you've still got all of these trends busy playing out. Yeah. Hope is not a strategy, as we always like to say in the trading world. Last thing. I mean, quick is, some, yeah. So, sorry, just one quick stat. Um, I had a look at the yields uh, in Europe. You know, Italy was trading at about 
positive 50 basis points in the 10 years. So this is, these are all 10-year yields in Europe. One year ago, it's trading at 50 basis points. It's now almost 400 basis points, so almost 4%. Mm. Germany was at minus 50 basis points. It's now at 150 basis points positive. France was at minus 20. We're now at positive 220. And then the US was at 1.1%. We're now at 3.2%. So it, the cost of debt's gone up quite significantly. And this excludes you know, the credit spreads where corporates would borrow because credit spreads also widened. So the cost of debt's gone up very significantly, which means liquidity is much tighter and you know, just on every possible basis. You're paying more for your debt. You've paid, you're still paying more for fuel, even though it's come off the highs. You're still paying more for food, even though it's come off the highs. And um, you're paying more for you know, interest on your mortgage. Mortgage rates are at multi, multi-year highs. Mm-hmm. In fact, affordability of uh, mortgages are now at the same level as where the housing market peaked in 2006-07. Sure. And we know what happened Being after very, that. Yeah. yeah. Very low affordability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy Grantham from GMO uh, published a paper last week um, titled the um, the super bubbles final act or, or something to that effect and that was you know following a couple of other papers that he wrote last year or earlier this year basically indicating that we're at the peak of a very very uh, once in a generation type super bubble in risk assets. And he thinks that this is, you know, we're, we're set up for a very, very uncomfortable decade. From everything that you're saying and from, you know, the discussion we've had this far, I, I can't disagree with him. It does feel like we've got a really, really tough decade of investing ahead of us. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, if you think back about the conversation we had in January about baby boomers, they sit sitting with 70 trillion of assets. Uh, they've got the highest equity component of any age group. They, on average, 66, so they're in retirement. And I cannot see them having more equities at the end of this decade than what they've got right now. In fact, I think they should have significantly less right now than what they already have. So they should be sellers, and they were basically the biggest holders and the biggest buyers of equities over the last couple of decades. Mm. You know, you can always break it down and say, well, what did hedge funds do and what did mutual funds do and what did ETFs do? But the people behind it are households. Those are the people who actually invest. So when they withdraw their money, you know, those funds will be sellers of equities. And uh, I don't really see what the replacement buyer is. The other Mm. thing also is one day, you know, when the dollar eventually peaks, I would think that foreigners would also be selling their U.S. equities and they are massive, massive holders of U.S. equities and U.S. treasuries. I mean, it might be worth just discussing there. One point we discussed, I think, in April was when the sanctions happened, the Russian sanctions and the freezing of the Russian central bank assets, The I expected that the Chinese would probably sell some of their treasuries. And since uh, it actually started a little bit before the war, They've been selling treasuries down from, uh, they sold about $100 billion worth of treasuries. Now, if you think about that, you know, this is a country that's a huge exporter, a net exporter. It sits with um, foreign reserves and it would then normally just plow that back into US treasuries. So they should have been a huge buyer this year because they've got a huge export surplus and they've actually been a seller. Now, the question is, where did that money go? And I suspect they might have been defending the Remimbi. Uh, that's one possible outcome because Remimbi has definitely been stronger than what it should have been on, you know, based on fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But my guess is they're going to be continuous sellers of U.S. Treasuries. Mm. Yeah, so more more pressure there. Um, just a quick point around the boomers and, and the retail investors. I want to just get back to that because I had a thought when you were talking about that. Last week, um, I saw a tweet, and unfortunately, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he basically done a, a breakdown of bear markets and looked at them in terms of the time that it takes for a bear market to play out and at what stage in the bear market the damage is the, is the greatest. And it was quite interesting to see that pretty much in every major historical bear market, you can split it up into thirds. The first third is not that severe. The second third is more severe. And the, by far and away, the biggest damage gets done in the final third in terms of time that it takes for a bear market to play out. And I guess that's the, the, the nature of the investor psychology and thinking back to boomers, thinking back to retail investors now is that they've been conditioned to think in terms of a bull market for such a long time now and to think that you know you buy the dips and it'll be okay. And you know nobody rings a bell at the top and nobody rings a bell at the bottom. But I can see a situation where the the sentiment gradually gets worn down and worn down until eventually you know the the boomers they haven't sold yet they've waited too long to sell suddenly in the final third of this bear market they get really scared and that's when they do all their selling and that's what creates a potential crash situation how do you think of that in terms of financial or the investor behavior psychology i think unfortunately that's right because i would have been you know if i was an advisor to baby boomers i'd be telling them or if i was a baby boomer myself i'd be selling right now and I would have sold, you know, in this recent rally. Mm. And the reason for it is you can't afford to take losses, you know, at this age. At 66, when you retired, you're not going to make the money back. So this is a crucial time for them not to lose money. Mm. You know, in 2008, they were, what, 14 years younger. So they had more time to make the money back. It was a cataclysmic fall in the market, but it came back and, you know, it took maybe five, seven years to get, you know, get the money back but they got it back and mm. that's okay the issue now is in five seven years time you know you 71 73 or dead yeah. so it's not really the, it's <laughs> it's so it's not uh, time is not on their side so i would definitely be selling into this um you know if you look at where we were in uh, february 2020 just before COVID, the index was around 3200 so we're still 700 points above it. I think maybe 32 or 3,400, somewhere around there. So we're still 500 to 700 points above where we were before COVID started. Mm. So during COVID, you actually still made money. And on top of that, you got sent a bunch of checks by the government. So it is a very profitable experience staying at home, getting checks from the government and watching your stock portfolio go up. So I suspect, you know, we can definitely go and visit that 3,400, 3,200 level if we get through there, that'll be problematic because now you're giving back, you know, on a two-year basis. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, if one looks back in, in past the deep bear markets, it can happen. Look back at 2000 to 2003 as an example. Um, it happened then and it was was a difficult time. I know it was when I started my career in the market and it was, wasn't fun. Let's. Yeah, the interesting thing is that it was relentless back then and also the sentiment was bearish the whole time around. So I actually find that, in a, you know, if this is a bear market, and I suspect it is a bear market, the, the odds favor it being a bear market, 
if that is the case, then the sentiment is less relevant. Positioning is far more relevant. And when you look at baby boomers, they haven't sold anything at all as yet. Yeah. You know, they, they're still around 64, 65% equity content, according to the Merrill's data, Bank of America data. And that is extremely high in retirement. Mm. Now, most of the models we learned at university would have it at half that. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess a lot of that, well, it's, it's probably growth as well. It's growth in their assets. But I wonder if it's possibly some of them not wanting to take the tax, pay the capital gains tax. Who knows? I, mean, I just remember I had a client once who didn't want to pay capital gains tax on a massive portfolio leading into 2008. And well, let's just say his tax problem went away along with his profits. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it sorts itself out. <laughs> yeah, it sorts itself out eventually. Let's have a look out now for the rest of this year. So we, we're in September, early September now. Um, I'll probably only bug you again, Nick, in the beginning of 2023 for another interview. So let's try and sketch what the rest of this year might look like um, and perhaps break it down into a couple of subheadings. Let's start with inflation as as as, as a outlook for the rest of this year. Uh, I would suspect inflation comes down. If there's any pickup later, it'll be something related to European supply chains. Uh, you know, as uh, at the moment, what they're doing is they're cutting um, corporates or industrial businesses are cutting demand, you know, by shutting down because the costs are so high. So even if there is gas, it's too expensive to be profitable. Mm-hmm. So you find that, you know, they'll produce less steel, less fertilizer, less ammonia, Ammonia goes into fertilizer and explosives, also into AdBlue, which is an exhaust of the car, diesel vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, any smelting product like aluminium, those kind of things, they're cutting back steel, cutting back. So if there's any supply chain issues, it will come out of um, Europe in the fourth quarter. But my guess is that inflation comes down because you can have deflation in goods. So if you think about the portfolio of inflation, same as a portfolio of stocks, you're now going to have some stocks that are negative falling and other things like uh, services and so on that's still positive. The blend will bring inflation down quite a bit. And um, so I suspect that maybe after the next rate hike in the US, they may just stick at uh, the higher level for some period of time. I don't foresee anything in the short term that will make them hike more. I think they needed to get up to date, you know, because they were well behind the curve. In fact, I think the last time we spoke, Rates were at like 33 basis points or something, and they threatened a lot of rate hikes but didn't yeah. achieve much. Yeah. So now, obviously, we're in a, in a very different situation, and because it works with lags, my guess is uh, rates will probably stop there. Um, inflation, yes, I think that comes down. I think the, uh, you know, if we broaden it out, there's quite a lot of uh, catalysts coming up in the next two or three months. Firstly, a lot of uh, Northern Hemisphere investors are getting back. We'll see if they want to buy or sell this market. And they may want to buy it, and that's you know completely possible if they think it's fallen enough. Uh, I suspect they may not, but um, it's uh, obviously possible they could. Mm. The catalyst ECB, what do they do this Thursday? Do they hike rates? That'll be relevant for dollar and euro. The uh, Senate and the House of Congress is reopening in, uh, this coming week. One topical issue which we didn't touch on is uh, Pelosi's visit, and around the time of yeah. Pelosi's visit. They were looking to pass the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. And effectively, that changes quite a lot of uh, elements of the relationship with Taiwan, which I think China would find a red line. 
Um, Biden then asked if, if this could be kind of kicked to touch to September because there were other things they were trying to get done and he didn't want to add fuel to the fire at the time. Now, this is probably the only bipartisan issue in Congress. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. If yeah. it crosses the red line for China, then we're going to have trouble in September, but more likely than not. It's especially a crucial time for three reasons. One, you've got the U.S. trying to look strong ahead of midterm elections. You've got Xi that needs to not lose face ahead of the plenum on the 16th of October. And you've got a Chinese economy that's really weak. So nationalism is usually a fix for a weak economy, you know, for the unhappiness that comes with a, with a, um, a weak economy. Mm. And there's one other issue which I think is well worth discussing is that income confidence in China amongst consumers are the lowest it's been on record. Um, the, the social contract between the CCP and Chinese citizens are, you're going to give up some of your freedom and we're going to give you economic growth. And you can measure the, the, the economic growth or economic opportunity as income confidence. When yeah. I've got low income confidence, clearly I don't feel that there's a lot of opportunity. And this number is now the lowest that I've ever seen it which means that the unhappiness under the surface is quite high, which that, that's the time that the CCP is most at risk. So I think that the next three months is a high-risk period for China-Taiwan. And this is a time where egos can get in the way of common sense. So we'll see what happens with the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. Obviously, if the, if the contents of it's changed, so it's not as uh, upsetting to the Chinese, that may you know, diffuse the situation, but if it gets voted through in its current form, I think that could be a significant catalyst. Um, the next two weeks is crucial for that. Mm -hmm. The Fed, 21 September, Italian election, 25th of September. And this one, uh, you know, this is an interesting issue because Italy is probably most affected by gas prices of the European countries. 50% of its electricity comes from gas. And you've got some right-wing parties that's making quite a lot of progress. If they win, I suspect they may actually go and speak to Putin to try and make a deal, which means they'll be breaking the coalition that's standing up against Putin at the moment. And that is quite a, you know, that, that's a big change. One of the things that impressed us in March is how the Europeans came together and stood up, you know, with the sanctions and, uh, you know, taking Russian assets, central bank assets and so forth. But that may start dissipating if the Italians were to break away and go their own way. And you could be doing something like that because, I mean, as you head into winter, you know, your voters want to know you're doing something about it. Yeah. So that's another issue. And then the CCP plan, I said, was the 16th of October, as discussed. U.S. earnings starting also around the 10th of October. So we'll get a feel for how earnings are doing, my guess, is weaker. And then the U.S. midterm elections on the 8th of November. What's interesting here is that for the moment, it looks like Republicans are going to win the House. And the House is where you can have impeachments and investigations. So mm. a lot of pro-Trump people have been winning in the local elections. And if they take the House in November, the risk is significant that they then do a proper investigation into the 2020 election. Now, remember, at the moment, we've got a 6th of Jan insurrection investigation by the House, mm. which is the Democratic House. Yep. If the a Republican House then invest the election, uh, investigates the election. We're basically questioning a democratic election in the United States. Mm -hmm. And if they deem that it was an unfair election, then essentially Biden is an illegitimate president. So you've got all kinds of nonsense that will come from that. 
I think that is a very big issue and division in the U.S. is the highest it's, uh, I think it, it's maybe ever been, according to Pew and Gallup. Sure. So um, uh, the U.S., you know, this is the kind of thing that can eventually put a top on the dollar, you know, maybe closer to the midterm election, maybe into next year. And um, that's something I'm definitely going to be watching right. because uh, there's actually a brilliant podcast. Um, Jordan Harbinger interviewed a lady who wrote a book on civil wars and her conclusions on the U.S. I think it's well worth listening to. Mm. Okay. Okay. So what? those are the those are kind of the catalysts. Sorry. Yeah. Now, just say the name of that podcast again for the benefit of the listeners. Jordan Harbinger, and mm. the interviewee is Barbara F. Walters. Okay. It was, I think it was last week, and it's called something Civil War. Right. They, um, she, was on a pan- she was on a panel for the U.S. government as to, you know, to try and determine which countries around the world are, you know, got high risk of civil war and so forth. Um, so she's been working on it for 30 years. And the conclusion is the risk in the U.S. is most definitely rising. Yeah. It's, it's not at the point where there will be civil war, but the risk is rising. Yeah. Needs a catalyst, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, one of the other interesting things is maybe just a side note is that um, I think the market for U.S. companies in the U.S. is going to shrink, especially very large companies. You know, you and I discussed J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan's got a policy which says that they won't lend money to companies that that um, sell assault rifles to the public. Now, I think that's a very logical policy because, <laughs> you know, civilians shouldn't have machine guns. Yeah. And... Um, but Texas has got its own state law that says that they won't do business with anyone that discriminates against gun companies. So the result is that J.P. Morgan was they weren't allowed to uh, bid for a bond auction from the Texas state government. Secondly, the Texas is going after BlackRock because it says it's got a lot of ESG policies in Texas and oil state. So the two are suing each other. Texas basically excluded all BlackRock products from their pension funds, their state pension fund. So I suspect what you're going to find is that if you are woke or not woke enough or too woke or you are pro-abortion or anti-abortion or pro-guns or anti-guns, depending on the state, you may not be able to do business in the state over time. So where you've got, you know, the 50 states to do business in today, that'll eventually become 49, 48, 47 and so forth. And that, again, is not something that's really, you know, it's not material right now, but I can see that that would increase over time as division increases which is another negative for U.S. earnings. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right, Nick, we've, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I know something you wanted to speak about uh, on this podcast is just to bring a little bit of an educational aspect into it and look at how to trade events or not how not to trade them. And you said you've got some personal stories on Brexit, on Trump, taper, COVID, vaccine, Ukraine, all of these left field events, I guess, that came into the market and how you trade these events or how you don't trade them. So I don't think we've got time to discuss all of those, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to. But I mean, let's pick one or two of them from your experience, these events. How do you trade them? How do you not trade them? So I'd say one of the lessons I've learned is that the market is much slower than what it was when I joined the market. You know, I started trading in the 90s and you had to be well ahead of the market. Yeah. Now it's not the case. I think you actually need to, you know, take a breath and wait a couple of weeks before the market will respond. So in 2016, I bet that Brexit would happen, but I did it by shorting uh, UK shares. And the reason why I did it is because I saw that the bookies, even though the, the the book said that 
that Remain will win. When you look at the bets, 68% of the bets actually voted on Brexit, but they were small amounts of money, so they couldn't skew the book because the book's obviously a money, you know, it's made up of the weight of money, not the weight of votes. Right. But the the Brexit referendum is clearly made up of votes. So I was staring at the pound on the Friday night, trading at 151, thinking I should short it, and I just didn't do it. And I ended up just being short equities. So the Monday, I made quite a lot of money. I was up like 11%. And by the Friday, I gave it all back. So I was actually down 1% for the month. And it's because I traded the wrong thing in the wrong time frame. So the equities fell significantly over the coming six months, but not immediately. And if mm-hmm. you think about why that was, is because it was inconceivable to people that this could even happen, which means they didn't think through the consequences. They just said, it's inconceivable that it'll happen. You know, it'll be so bad. And they didn't think about it any further. So nobody had a plan. And when the market doesn't have a plan, it takes a long time for that kind of thinking to distribute through the market. So the reality of it is you have to, you know, if it's something the market doesn't expect at all, it may take quite a bit of time before it actually plays out. And then similarly, I mean, if you look at COVID, you could pick up that COVID was something around mid-Jan. I think the first note I wrote about it was the 18th of Jan of 2020. Mm. And it took until the first week of March, you know, before the market actually realized what was happening. You know, Tesla was making all-time highs in Feb. There's a whole bunch of businesses making all-time highs. Mm. And um, it took six weeks. So, I mean, I, I basically had a round of options go to zero in the interim. And, you know, the March ones paid off in a big way. So that made it all more than worthwhile and it was a very good couple of months. But it was quite interesting as to how slow the markets have become. And I think the lesson there is just that in a world that's more passive, there's less people thinking about things and more people just following. Because all of these instruments, you know, passive funds, essentially just following whatever has won before, it keeps buying those. And as long as there's inflows, it keeps buying. Mm. So I'd say, you know, whatever events you expect, you need to have a longer time frame on it you know, rather than a shorter time frame. Yeah, fair enough. Especially, I guess, when you're, as you say, if you're a macro strategist and you're trying to trade on some of these macro events, well, then that makes sense. Yeah, the thing is, you know, so the thing is, like, let's say you long UK equities, you think, you don't think Brexit's going to happen, but you want to hedge it. And you think you should buy like one week puts just over the event. Mm. Well, that was a mistake. Right, because the uh, you would have made money for two days, then go the hedge would have been worthless by the end of the week, and then your portfolio starts falling thereafter. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things where you know it just takes quite a while for the market to work through it. Right. Okay. All right, Nicole, we're out of time. Uh, as always, it's been really fascinating speaking to you, and my hugest gratitude to you for giving up an hour of your time to speak to me today and to make what has been a really interesting first uh, episode of season five of Talking With Traders. Uh, I know you and I will be speaking more regularly, but I'd love to get you back on the podcast for the listeners' benefits probably early 2023, if I can slot you in at that stage. (laughs) (laughs) We'll first see if you're going to learn your lesson after this round. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Nick. Well, thank you again. It's been superb, and I always enjoy chatting to you. Thanks a lot, God. Okay, cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. 
We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.